Hello, and welcome back, Curious to Serious listeners. This is your co-host, Gabby. Today, we're excited to present our conversation with Oscar Bull Hansen, who is a practicing above-ground, underground psychedelic guide in Norway. This is a really great conversation for our listeners who are interested in what psychedelic work can look like outside of mainstream medical models. So we start by covering what Oscar's practice looks like in terms of preparation, psychedelic sessions, and integration. And then we'll cover how Oscar's personal experiences with psychedelics influence his transition from a career in information technology and human resources to becoming a full-time guide, as well as the many resources he used to develop his practice. And then finally, we'll round things out with some advice for those who are interested in following a similar path as Oscar and a discussion of the future of the psychedelic field. Additionally, before we get started, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsor. This podcast wouldn't be here without MAPS, whose support has allowed us to keep the online psychedelic grad community platform free for all members and allows us to publish these insightful conversations for everyone to enjoy. So without further hesitation, here's our conversation with Oscar Bullhansen. Welcome, and thank you for joining me today, Oscar. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. To get us started, Oscar, can you explain what you mean when you describe your work as an above-ground, underground guide? Yeah. So, well, basically, I take my clients through a full psychedelic therapeutic process, including the trip-sitting part of it and the preparation, integration afterwards. I have a website I used to run Google ads until they shut me down. Yeah, I'm running it openly as a business and I'm paying my taxes and uh, doing everything above ground, but I'm still doing something that I guess in the regular sense of it would be illegal. So I have a little workaround there. Perfect. It sounds like your work is very holistic in the fact that you provide services before, during the experience, and integration afterwards. Can you talk a little bit more about specifically the before and afterwards processes and what kind of services that looks like for your clients? Yeah, it starts with, I have a basic process that is uh, the minimum of what people can go through, basically, which is consists of this preparation phase which um, has two separate hours where we get to know each other. We get a little bit of feel for what kind of substance maybe is most beneficial for them. I, I work mostly with psilocybin or MDMA. We go through what the experience might look like for them, how I'll behave, set some you know, expectations on their end, what I will do and what I won't do through the process and also some ground rules so that's basically the preparation phase and if people feel like they need more some people you know might be coming into this with a lot of insecurity about the process so they um so then they might add hours as well but this is just a basic minimum package we have two hours of preparation and then we have set of a full day so we schedule eight hours for the day when they are under the influence and and this is kind of you know um, try to follow the the clinical protocols as closely as I can, and so I have a, a room that is uh, you know decorated for these kinds of experiences, 
and there's a sofa which I make up uh, with a sheet, and then they lie down with headphones and uh, and a sleep mask. And then at the tail end of the experience, you know, when they come off of the experience, there's some integration work there as well if they feel up for it. And then two days after the experience, I give them a call, just a little, how do you do, kind of, did you sleep okay? Has anything come up? Because it's, it can be a bit of a destabilizing process, right? So there's a little follow-up there. And then two weeks after the experience, we have an integration session where we try to see what has come up in those two weeks, what questions do they have, what kind of insights have they gotten, tips and tricks on how to get that into your massage and integrate it into your everyday life, basically. So that's the process. Thank you for sharing that. Is there a particular reason why you mainly focus on psilocybin and MDMA with there being so many other potential psychedelics? Yeah, there are there are some reasons. First of all, there they are medicines that I'm very familiar with myself. These are the substances that are, I guess, to the biggest extent supported by research today. And of course, if you compare psilocybin to LSD, there's the time frame as well, because it's usually it lasts for three to six hours. The experience sometimes it goes over even with psilocybin and yeah, with LSD, I would just be, it would not work. It would be too exhausting, basically, especially to do it in a, in a setting like this, where it's just, I'm the only uh, person attending, you know. So we're not, there's not two of us where one can step out for, a, have a lunch break. Yeah, I see what you're saying. LSD, it can be quite a long experience sometimes. I want to jump into something that you talked about in our discussion before the podcast. You talked a little bit about how you view the work that you do as contributing to harm reduction in a very unique way. Do you mind taking some time to to talk about that perspective and how you see your work fitting into harm reduction and your definition of harm reduction? Sure. Yeah. The workaround that I mentioned earlier, the reason why I've been able to run this above ground as a business is because I don't supply my clients with the actual substance. So that's, that's the workaround. We're now in a time where these substances are getting a lot of media attention. There have been written a lot of books about it and about conditions that are very prevalent in our society. So people who are struggling with, for example, PTSD, they sometimes hear about the MAPS studies. And the people with the depression might hear of psilocybin and when people hear about medicines, and of course, there's a little bit of hype to it as well, right? In these studies, the numbers are probably far better than they would be in real life, but there's people still read this and they want to try it. They see that, okay, maybe for MDMA, it's going to be an improved medicine by 2023, you know, maybe for psilocybin, maybe a little bit later. And it's that people are, are eager like if you're if you're suffering from depression or uh, PTSD, you don't want to wait for three to five years for medicine to get approved. And in Norway, it's going to be a little bit later after the U.S. as well. So, what they try to do then is you know find alternatives. 
So uh, a lot of people look up ayahuasca retreats. People sometimes go to you know the Netherlands for psilocybin experiences. People buy MDMA themselves and then try to self-medicate at home. So this is something that is happening right now. And what I'm trying to do is to take that group of people who have already decided that they want to self-medicate and I want to give them the safest setting that I can create for them and the most valuable. That's a really interesting and, and unique perspective on harm reduction. Thinking about my own definition of harm reduction, I think a lot of it revolves around the idea of testing substances for adulterants as potential harm to people. So when clients bring their substances to you, do you encourage them to test them before going through the experience or do you provide resources, support or services for that? Yeah, I have test kits at home. And it's also been an issue about this in Norway where test kits have been a little bit hard to get. And when you order it from other countries, they have been sometimes stopped in the customs and you've got a little bit of a tick next to your name in customs, which is you know, a horrible anti-harm reduction approach. So I do have test kits here. And then my clients come here and we test it and we make sure the dose is correct. And of course, there's, there's two elements to it. One is finding out that it's the right substance and it's relatively accurate of doing that, these test kits. And then you have the other factor, which is dose. So as long as you have both these factors under control, then it's it's very safe. And of course, you have the setting as well where yeah, people don't go out and have an experience where they could hurt themselves. I'm glad that you brought up dose between you and the client. One, how do you determine which substance to work with? And two, how do you determine the dose to work with for each client? Well, first of all, I think I follow a little bit of the, you know, this standard... Um, fits that you have, uh, which is if you have PTSD, MDMA might be a better substance to try. If you have a lot of trauma, if you have a lot of anxiety, if you have, you can call it maybe high sensitivity, like clients have, MDMA could be a better substance to start with. And for psilocybin, if people are, you could say maybe like a little bit, it has a more stable core more stable life, if they have more stable social interactions, relationships in their lives, if they have a job and these these factors, then maybe psilocybin is a better uh, fit for them. Sometimes it's not always black and white, right? So I've been working with this full time for the past year and I have a screening process that I go through where we just go through like their diagnoses and there is history and a bit of it is you also, I guess you get a feel for it after a while. And so now for the past year, I've had about like 70 plus clients. And some of them have been returning for two or three experiences. And I think you get a little of a sense for it where you feel like with this person, this person is very nervous, uh, has a very strong inner critic then maybe MDMA is better to kind of stabilize a bit and give them a little bit of safety feeling first. And then once they're, they don't kind of reach the point where they can't get anything more out of MDMA, then maybe psilocybin is the next step. 
Okay. So it kind of sounds like this is a decision that you make, but is it sometimes collaborative with the client as well? Like if they're very insistent on taking psilocybin over MDMA, but perhaps you see MDMA as the better choice in that particular situation, is that something that you negotiate with them? Yeah, it is. You know, people come in with their preconceptions about these substances. Some people have read how to change your mind, and then they're, you know, gung-ho on psilocybin, just because Michael Pollan, you know, had a AFib. And they might think that, you know, MDMA is, you know, that's a party drug and stuff like this. So they come in with these preconceptions and these expectations. And and sometimes that's that's perfectly fine. Sometimes I give them a recommendation, you know, like I think this might be better, or we can start it with a lower dose of psilocybin, for example. And sometimes I have to give them kind of a hard no, you know, where everything in my gut says that this is going to be a really heavy psilocybin experience for them. Then sometimes I say like, well, I'm not comfortable with this. I think it's really important to point out to our listeners that you do not provide any diagnoses for your clients. They come to you potentially with diagnoses, is that correct? But you do not provide any type of diagnosis for them. That's correct. Yeah. So I'm not not a psychologist. I don't have that training at all. And I do see the services that I provide as a as a part of the full experience. And I'm trying to do the psychedelic part of the experience as safe and as beneficial as possible. But most of my clients have established relationships with their other therapists. And I encourage them to include this process take that in with their therapist so they can work on it long-term as well. So that's my area of expertise is the psychedelic part and and not necessarily the therapy part. Okay, so it sounds like you find your work more complementary to therapy versus actually providing therapy. It makes me wonder, thinking about my own experiences, have you ever had clients come in and do work with you and then go to try to work through things on the therapeutic side of things with their therapist and they receive pushback or a lack of acceptance from their therapist? hundred percent. This is very common, I feel like. And maybe, I don't know how it is in the US, but in Norway, it's really bad. People have these preconceptions about drug use in general and And they don't really, they don't understand this sphere, so they just react to it. And some people react very strongly, you know, say like, if you continue with this, I will not be your therapist anymore. So some of my clients have this, they talk to their therapist about this and they have come in, therapist is, is open to continue to work with them. Maybe they don't know that much about the psychedelic therapy part, but they're still, they're open to talk about the experience, which I think is, you know, it's a good start. And for those clients who feel like I'm not going to be able to talk to my therapist about this, sometimes maybe suggesting that they might find another therapist if they're comfortable with that, or talk about the experience with different labels. So they can say that they're going to a breathwork retreat, for example, they're going to have a breathwork experience or a meditation you know, Vipassana, 10 days, silent retreat or something like that. And they can talk about these spiritual or difficult experiences with their therapist 
without the preconceptions around the drug use. I think that's really interesting and very important. As I mentioned, I had an experience and I went to a therapist and unfortunately, like many of your other clients, I was not well received. In fact, this therapist tried to convince me that I had a drug addiction. It really shattered me and it was actually really detrimental. I was in a very critical moment of walking this line between spiritual emergence and psychosis, really. And that kind of reception from my therapist really pushed me more to the side of psychosis. It was really detrimental. I wish I had that piece of advice earlier of framing it within a different vocabulary or within a different practice, talking about it through breathwork or meditation. It would have been really interesting to see how that would have been received differently for me. So I think that's a really important piece of advice for individuals who have these experiences and for those who are interested in providing similar services in the way that you do. And I think you provide a great transition into something I want to dive a little bit deeper into, which is talking about how you came into, into this position of being an above ground, underground guide. If you could talk a little bit about what you did before psychedelics and how you found out about psychedelics and what got you into that to bring you to where you are today. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I started working in IT about 10 years ago. At that point, I hadn't done any, what I used to classify as hard drugs, right? And psychedelics were in that category for sure. So I tried some cannabis from time to time and that was it. And then a very close friend of mine said that, you know, you need to try MDMA. I had this idea about what it would give me, you know, it would give me short-term pleasure, long-term and negative effects afterwards, and it was very addictive and dangerous. That's what I thought about it. So I gave my friend a hard no, and then he asked me to do some research. And he said, like, Oscar, just do five minutes of research, because I, I know you love doing research. So just spend five minutes on it and see what pops up. And of course, it didn't take more than, you know, two minutes to find out that I was, you know, wrong about the addictive properties of MDMA and uh, wrong about the toxicity of it. So I ended up trying it in a recreational setting at a club. And then we left the club after maybe like half an hour or something. And it was a very blissful experience and very different than I expected. Like I didn't feel high. It was just a very clear and sober kind of sense. And then I expected to be hungover the next day, which I wasn't. And then a couple of days after I went to work and I noticed that it like started all these processes in my head about why do I look grumpy when I walk to work every morning? You know, all these people that look at me when they go to their work and I always look like I have a serious face on. So I just started smiling when I started going to work. I started saying hi to beggars that I usually just go by. And this this lasted for a long time, this afterglow effect. And some of the elements are, you know, still with me today. That opened my eyes that actually some of these substances can have a beneficial aspect to them. And so fast forward a couple of years, some experiences with different psychedelics. And I started getting more into the therapeutic aspect of it and, you know, the studies and the trials that were ongoing. And I smoked cigarettes for 16 years of my life. So I obviously wanted to kick that habit, but for some reason it was really hard. I felt I had control over my life in many ways. 
but the cigarettes were really like they had me in their control instead. And so I saw this smoking cessation study that was done with LSD, and I tried to copy that as much as I could, and I stopped smoking. And this was just in a day, and I felt afterwards like I didn't have any kind of withdrawal effects. I didn't even miss it at all. And I had this experience, and then I went back to work. And at that point, I was an HR manager in an IT company. And it just created a very strong contrast you know, to have this experience where I was thinking, can one experience make me add 10 years to my life? That is it's quite a big contribution. And then I go back to work and... I was sitting in Excel and we were talking about salary increases and everyone in my company were overpaid. We had massages at the office every day and people came in to make us like custom lunches and everything. And it was just, and people were still miserable to some extent, you know, people were still complaining about, you know, the length of the massage or that the salary increase was just 10% this year, which should have been 15 and this just created a huge contrast for me, where on this one hand, I saw something that felt it could give so much value. And on the other hand, I felt like I was giving nothing, no value to people. So maybe like half a year after that, when I stopped smoking, I decided that I would try to work with this. And I spent about a year and a half, almost two years, just reading books and spending every minute after work to get into this whole area and to understand as much as I could. And I attended some courses, I went to New York for a course and took some training in a model that is called internal family systems that is used sometimes in combination with psychedelic therapy. And so I spent about two years doing that, and then I was ready to to leave my other job and, and start doing this full-time. So now it's been about a year, and it was a great choice for me. Thank you for sharing that. I've been really excited to ask you about that because I know your story resonates very much with my own personal experiences. So I'm really excited to share that story with our listeners because I know there are probably plenty of people out there that are going to really find that interesting and find that it resonates within them too. So thank you so much for sharing that. I have a couple questions that dive a little bit deeper into that. First, do you remember the particular study that you read on smoking sensation that got you interested in trying that for yourself? Yeah, well, I remember parts of the study. I'm just thinking if it's maybe, if it's Ben Sessa maybe has done it. So it could be Imperial College or something. It was a small study. There were like 15 participants. And it's quite old, like maybe 10 years old or something. And they had an 80% success rate. Of course, like it's a tiny study, so you can't really uh, tell. But 80% is also uh, a lot compared to addictions in general, and also smoking cessation, other kind of alternatives. Of course, since I smoke cigarettes, this was also something that I was particularly interested in. Perfect. It sounds like you did a lot of work on your own and a lot of self-driven, self-taught type of research to get you to where you are today. I think our listeners and myself would be really interested in hearing any particular resources that you found 
for the most helpful in building the knowledge base that helps you do the work that you do. Yeah, and there's different phases, right? So there's different stages, different books, and uh, the different things gave me different uh, aspects at that time that I could really appreciate. But I think the psychedelics today, for example, they have a, a course uh, called Navigating Psychedelics. They have one addition to that, which is maybe like five times as expensive or something, which is called Navigating Psychedelics for Clinicians which is basically the same course, but then you have also the community aspect of it afterwards where you have group meetings where you discuss, which was very useful as well because then you have experienced therapists with the different focuses and then you can discuss all this together. And also it was a great way of making some connections and there are some of these people that we've just been talking and having a dialogue after this course as well. And it, I think it's, it's very thorough that course. If you look at it as a beginner's course, it's a very thorough course. So that was great. And for me, my way of learning, I think theory is great, but I always appreciate practical examples. And there's a combination of both, right? So there's some books that are written by underground guides. You have Leo Zeff has written a book called The Secret Chief Revealed, which is about his underground therapy practice. There's a guy named R. Coleman who has written a book called Psychedelic Therapy. There's a lady who calls herself Anne Other who has written a book on MDMA therapy called Trust, Surrender, Receive. And there's a book as well called LSD Psychotherapy written by Stanislav Groff, which has been very beneficial for me because he lists up all these examples of how people react, all these different reactions. And that has given me a lot of security in what I do because there are so many different reactions that people have. And just to have that kind of, you know, like Stan Groff's voice in the back of my head saying that, you know, this is normal. This is a part of the process. It's okay. has really helped me to be more present and be more calm with my clients. Fantastic. I'm starting to slowly work my way through the psychedelics today clinicians and therapists course myself, the self-paced one. I definitely agree. It's a really great, very thorough course. So I definitely encourage those who are interested to check that out. I have Stan Croft's LSD psychotherapy book. That's a great recommendation too. Those are all wonderful. For our listeners, I'll throw some links below the podcast. That way, if you're interested in any of those resources, you can check them out. So I'm sure that along your journey, everything has not been super smooth. I'm sure you've come across some um, challenges. So what have been some of the biggest challenges that you faced within this process, either within your practice or even just preparing yourself for practice? And how did you overcome some of these challenges? I would say a lot of things has run a lot more smooth than I would expect. So that's in itself a great thing. But for me, the hardest part has been the lack of colleagues in some sense. Where, you know, in any kind of profession, if you're working alone, you're always wondering if you're doing stuff right. You know, are you being crazy or are you just pushing the limits of what is the norm, the standard? And this is, this is a really hard line uh, to walk on. And for me, through this whole learning process, most people who are doing lectures about this, maybe they don't have that much hands-on experience. 
So even the people who are leading the trials, you know, who are the the world's largest experts, they still maybe have, you know, 50 sessions under their belt. If you compare it to, you know, Stanislav Grof, who maybe had 3,000, there's a big gap there. And I think for me, it feels a little bit like the blind are leading the blind within this field. And that is difficult when you get clients who have other reactions than are expected. And like, who do you talk to, right? I had a client, for example, who, and he's comfortable about me telling his part of his story. He tried psilocybin on his own and he passed out. So he had an experience with me and then he wanted to try a lower dose on his own and he passed out. And then I just scratched my head and go like, well, this is not common. You know, this is a strange, a very uncommon incidence. At this point, someone with a lot of experience would be able to help. After a while, we turned up, maybe it was a, he had a migraine nasal spray that he sometimes uses at night and it takes about 18 hours or something to leave his system. And that could have an interaction with psilocybin, for example. So that could be one hypothesis that we ended up with. So I guess if you would turn this into a tip, it's just how do you find people who have at least some experience uh, and then have regular meetings, regular talks with these people so that you can exchange experiences and also just give each other some peace of mind because it can be very it can be very stressful when you don't have any kind of support. As you mentioned, you kind of feel like at times it feels like the blind is leading the blind. And so when you had a lot of questions, you developed an underground forum, correct? Yeah. Do you mind talking a little bit about what that forum was and, and why you created it? Yeah. So it was basically when I started out, I had a lot of questions that most people that I reached out to couldn't answer. So I wanted to find people who had more experience. And I also wanted to kind of gather this information somehow so that it's not just a dialogue between two people, but it's a more open forum. So I created this forum that is closed, no user registration, just manual, and just ask some people who I know are working with this, you know, to tell other people, invite other people who are also working with this into this forum. I had this up and running for maybe a year and a half or two years. And it was, I think maybe we're a group of 30 people who are working actively as underground therapists, but maybe five of them were participating actively in the forum. And this was a really great learning process for me because some of them were a lot more experienced than me. And yeah, it gave me a lot of great tips, you know, anything from what kind of sleep mask do you use or playlists or can you ensure purity of mdma for example through different like chemical processes and everything was this shared in this forum and it was great i was asking 100 questions and i got answers to all of them and then after a while i had less fewer and fewer questions and it just kind of the activity just died out so when it came time to renew it, I was like, uh, there's another bill uh, of $100. You know what? I'm going to shut it down. Once you got the answers that you were looking for and you felt like you had a solid enough foundation 
of knowledge. How did you start your practice? First of all, I started with friends, right? That's a little bit how it started. So I wanted to practice, and then my friends were nice enough to offer their minds as my uh, little playground. And so it started with friends, and it spread to friends of friends, and then some family members, and it just got bigger. And I got feedback from them on the process and everything. So that was that was really great. And I had my website up and running maybe six months before I resigned from the other work, my other job. And I started getting contact requests through that. I had a blog, I still do, where I write about everything from a guide to trip sitting to a list of all the studies that are underway or completed and stuff like this. And so I had a kind of a running start. And so I had some clients and then I did mostly on the weekends. Uh, had clients just uh, some here and there. And then that started picking up. So when, by the time I left my other job, I, I had probably about four clients a month at that time, which was good enough to kind of live off of especially because my wife's a dentist, so that creates some stability there. Yeah, for me, it was important that I didn't have too much pressure on me when I started with this because it's not a service you can you know, sell to people. You can't push people to have this experience. So for me, it was very important that I you know, could say no to clients and could say to them that you know, maybe you should wait a couple of months. It sounds like you're like a little undecided and you might need some more time. So just to have that um, get a little started before I kind of left my financial uh, backing there. I think you've given so much wonderful and insightful information. I think one of the biggest questions our listeners might have is for those who are interested in following a similar path as you, what advice would you give them to find their way along their path and hopefully end up in a very similar position to where you are now? You know, I feel different people that you can always find your own path in a sense, you know, and that's the maybe the most important factor. But for me, it has been very important to have support in someone, someone that you trust. Uh, and for me, it's been my wife and then a couple of friends. And to have that little, to get that little feedback from time to time, like it's like, for a period of time, I did my trips where maybe uh, a little bit close together, I had some very high dose experiences. And then at that point, uh, the question, you know, like, am I going crazy? Is, is this crazy? If 99 out of 100 people tells you you're doing something crazy, does that mean you're crazy? So it's a very, uh, for me, it was a... Uh, a new area to walk into and I really needed support from some people that I trust that I can check with through the whole time. You know, if my client had this reaction, is this, am I crazy for thinking this or that? I think at least to just have some kind of grounding, some support through this, uh, through that process has been maybe the most important thing for me. I think a lot of people will find that very helpful. I had a question. It kind of goes back into the practice of your practice. I think something that I've found in the research that I've done on underground work and above ground work is there's this question of guides making the decision to be in a very similar state of mind as their clients. 
Is that something that you find beneficial in your practice? If you don't mind speaking to that a little bit. I can't get high twice a week. You know, I have a couple of kids. Uh, (laughs) I definitely see the beneficial aspect of it. So I'm curious to explore that more in the sense of, for example, especially to me with psilocybin, because you can do it more often. It's less, less toxic. And to kind of have that, share that experience with some of my clients is something that I've, I've started to do a bit, especially with clients that I maybe had here before and that I know can, I can predict their reactions a little bit more. So I feel a little bit more safer. And I think maybe that's a part of my own process as well, because it's being under the influence of, of uh, psilocybin for me can make me very sensitive and it can make me very insecure. So in some moments, it can make me really connected, but in other moments, it might really disconnect me because I feel I misread a situation and then that triggers my issues that I haven't fully resolved yet. And so I think, I think that's something that I'd be, be curious to explore more and more and, and also as a part of my own therapeutic process for clients who are willing to, you know, let me do that. And also there's an aspect of the contact high or the, the, you know, when I see people are going through these different stages of the experience that I can recognize, you know, like with psilocybin, people usually they yawn on MDMA. You can, you can tell it just from like the, the sound of people's mouths, you know, when they're fixating a bit or just how their tone of voice changes and as I see these effects in my clients, I also, I can literally sense it in my body as well. Like I could feel it like in my fingers and in my toes. And I feel like I can relax more because now I know this person is in this, this state, you know? So yeah, it's a little bit of a mix, mix of both. Thank you for that. I think we can start to kind of wrap things up here. So At the conclusion of interviews, we like to ask some questions about how you see the future of the psychedelic field and where you see it going and how you see your future developing within that. So as an overall field, what are your hopes for the future of psychedelics? Well, I hope they're going to keep some of the magic in the psychedelics, if you know what I mean. You know, it's a Putting it into the Western medical model, it removes some of the magic or the mystery to it, or you, you can call it placebo effect if you call it like in the, in the medical terms. But I think if we can keep some of that mystery and keep some of that setting and the processes, and I, I, that's what my biggest hope, I guess, because it's going to be, at least for the foreseeable future, it's going to be more of a clinical thing. That's what I cross my fingers for at this point. Yeah, I totally understand you on that. Within the Western medical model, it can be a bit disheartening sometimes, especially with pharmaceutical developments. And I know I just saw, I forget the name of the company, but they just developed some type of technique to test for substances that hit on the receptor within the brain, but they don't create the psychedelic feeling. I guess like their aim with it is to find substances that contribute to neuroregeneration and neurological growth in the same way that psychedelics do without that magic of the psychedelic. 
And so I definitely align very much with, with your kind of aspirations for that. My research focuses more on recreational use and looking at very much that magic side of things of what is the magical part of psychedelics that make these experiences, particularly within recreational settings. So i um, very much aligned with that. Yeah. Some people have compared psychedelics or hypothesized that it works as a kind of a, maybe it's a, it's a placebo booster, you know? And the thing is that placebo is a very interesting concept in itself because it actually can, it can change even the physiology of people just by believing it. And I think in the Western model, we don't have this factor. You know, we try to get the placebo out of it. You go into your doctor and they do everything not to be wrong. So they want to be on the safe side of everything. So they tell the clients that, you know, I can't promise anything, you know, and 30% of people who take this medicine don't get any effect. And I have to just inform you of how big of a chance it is that this is going to do nothing for you. And then you're also taking away the placebo effect or the hope of it, right? And I think when with the psychedelics and you have some of this psychedelic mindset to some sort where you can say, like, you just follow, trust the process, you know, it might be ups and downs, but it's going to, it's going to turn out, uh, it's going to be beneficial after a while. You have this, these ways of looking people in the eye and just saying that, which gives them hope and that makes them able to look for that. You know, they're able to look for the benefits that this might give them instead of saying that, you know, the doctor told me that this is not going to work. So that's all you're looking for is reasons why it's not working. The term of placebo within the Western medical model is very much the magic of hope. <laughs> yeah. As psychedelics develop, what are your dreams and your aspirations and how do you see yourself fitting within the future of the psychedelic field? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. The weird aspect is that, you know, I came from HR and now I'm one of the people who have the most experience, at least here in Norway, within this field, but like practical experience. But I'm still going to be on the sideline, very much on the sideline. Like I'm not never going to be, you know, accepted into at least the, like the mainstream. So I don't think I can, you know, doing workshops for large amounts of uh, psychologists or something like that, because I'm, I'll always be on the outside. Maybe smaller groups would be interesting, you know, to share experience in, in, in smaller groups. And also I see this, you know, when the clinical model comes, it, well, it starts becoming normal, there's always going to be a forefront, right? There's always going to be five steps ahead. And maybe I'll like to be more in that area, you know. Maybe you realize that in five years when you're doing this standard clinical model here, maybe there's a study that opens up that says that, you know, psilocybin in combination with MDMA might be something or, I don't know, using ketamine for a preparation session and then going with this or doing it in the forest, doing it as a group setting. There's a lot of things to explore and a lot of ways we can adopt the process to each individual uh, and what suits them the best that the clinical model might be limited to for at least uh, some time. I think that's a really great answer. And I think it points to the importance of those of us, the way that we engage with psychedelics and the work that we do with psychedelics as being 
these early stages of what leads clinical studies into the future studies. And I just saw a study come out. It's the first clinical study looking at the role of a group setting. And it's interesting because within kind of like you said, more on the outskirts of the clinical side of things. This is something that we've talked about. Even in ayahuasca, like you have, you have group settings of ayahuasca. So it's not really anything that's new. It's just that the clinical perspective is finally kind of catching up to those of us who have already been exploring some of these ideas. I think it's really beautiful that you point out this role that those of us who are not tied necessarily into the clinical side of things or may never be accepted by the clinical perspective, how we very much lead them into their future studies and the future development of Western medicine involving psychedelics. And so I think that's a very important point to bring up. Is there anything else that you'd like to say or offer to our listeners before we wrap things up? It's a really exciting field to work in, as I'm sure you agree as well. There's all these different elements that kind of makes it like uh, a little bit unsafe in some ways, you know. As a psychologist, you have your profession, this kind of insurance and you have everything behind you. And and if you work as a psychedelic guy, you don't have any of that net at all. And if one of my clients choose to report me to the authorities for something, or if I have to call an ambulance on one of my clients, I'm going to be in deep shit, Right. So I think like being brave, but also being a bit on the cautious side and being careful and making sure that you take all these necessary steps to make it safe for other people is important, obviously for your clients, but also for yourself. And it's hard to judge when you're on your own and like, how do you make it safe? What do you do? But there's some harm reduction tips that are out there like you know in testing it uh, screening for especially for mdma if there's any heart conditions or high blood pressure like i have a, a blood pressure measurement machine here that i run on clients that have had high blood pressure so that we can check it at different points and this is just to make me calm because i don't want to have someone who has a heart attack on my couch basically So, yeah, so the mix of being brave, but also a bit cautious, I think it's a good mix. I think that's a really important point that I think a lot of our listeners will really appreciate is trying to find that balance between being brave and and being safe. So for any of our listeners, if they are interested in connecting with you, what is the best way that they can reach out to you? Yeah, they can write me an email, Oscar with a K at PSYN.no, or just go to my website, PSYN.no. It's in both Norwegian and English. And I'm on Facebook. I think that's the best way is to reach out. And if people have questions or something they want to share, I'm always, always open to that. And I always read all my emails and I always respond to them. Awesome. Thank you so much. Actually, I have one more question. How has COVID impacted your practice, considering you physically bring people into a space and you're in close contact with them during this experience? Has COVID changed the way that you practice or the way that you think about your practice? Um, not so much. It's been a le- less COVID here in Norway than it has been in the U.S., for example. So we've had not as strict lockdowns. And I don't really know if I get more business or less business due to COVID. I also started up right before COVID started. But I've had one client 
where I was sitting with a mask and uh, we had a air purifier and uh, had to um, disinfect everything in the room. But apart from that, it hasn't affected me that much. I see two clients per week. It's not that many people who come here. Yeah. It just kind of hit me, you know, you're working with people in person, but I think the cultural perspective and the way that Norway has handled the pandemic versus the United States, it, that's a really interesting kind of perspective. So thank you for offering that. And like if they're here for preparation, we don't shake hands and we don't do anything like that. But for the actual session day, I can't stand back and, you know, like not hold your hand when you're going through a crisis. Um, so at that point, it's just you just have to take a risk. And if I just tell my clients, you know, if you have any symptoms, of course, just let me know in advance uh, and we can just postpone it. And the same goes for me as well. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining me today, Oscar. I have learned so much and I'm sure our listeners have found so many amazing things to take from you today. I really can't wait to share this wealth of knowledge and information. I think it will add a really unique perspective. And I hope it inspires some of our listeners to know that there are ways to practice being a guide, you know, being above ground, underground. And I think you gave a lot of things to consider. And I want to also thank you for sharing your story I know there's a lot of individuals in this space that want to be open about their personal use and how that influences what they do or what they want to do within the psychedelic field, and they don't necessarily feel comfortable. So by being open and being vulnerable and sharing your story, I hope that it inspires others to have the confidence to do the same. Yeah, you're very welcome. And thank you for that. And, uh, you know, even though this technically what I'm doing is defined as not illegal, there are no laws that are, you know, concerning this directly. So we'll just see how things go. And um, worst case scenario, you'll just have to write me when I'm in prison. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully it doesn't come to that. Hopefully most people can easily email you or contact you through your website. Let's hope for that at least. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you enjoyed our podcast and would like to connect with like-minded spirits, be sure to jump on over to our Psychedelic Grad community page. You can find the link in the notes below. Also, if you're looking for psychedelic studies, field announcements, and job openings, you can sign up for the Psychedelic Grad weekly newsletter. And finally, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a five-star review and maybe even a comment so we know that we're doing a good job. Thank you again for joining us. I'm your co-host, Gabby. Stay curious, and we look forward to seeing you back here for our next episode of Psychedelic Grad's Curious to Serious podcast.